Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When it comes to fitness, what's real? How about when it really, truly fits your life? That's how Anytime Fitness sees it. Because our coaches see you. It's how they build personal plans that work wherever you are and focus on everything that matters, from fitness to nutrition to recovery, all so you can push yourself further than ever or just through the next rep. It's total 360 support for a real difference. That's Anytime Fitness. That's Real AF. Visit anytimefitness.com. At Delta, we know Mike and HC prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, HC is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. We stood ankle deep in the letters which came through the slit in a continuous shower until the baskets overflowed on the floor. And there were valentine parcels and valentine hampers. Half of the valentines were really dainty, tasteless things. Many were decoratively printed on satin with fine lace borderings and little golden thread tassels. But at least one-fourth were coarse and offensive, too much so for descriptions. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Uh, those are the words of a post office clerk who is remembering the late Victorian period, which is in some ways the heyday, I would say, of uh, a Valentine's Day. Tom, are you a great enthusiast for Valentine's Day? Uh, not normally. And um, the simple reason for that is that um, Sadie, my beloved wife, uh, is very, very hostile to displays of commercialized sentimentality. Um, and so she gets very cross if I give her a Valentine's Day card or do anything like that. Although, excitingly, I am taking her out tonight. Oh, that's nice. So, so, so that's good. Um, however, I think, I mean, you know, being lovely on Valentine's Day is all well and good. But you, you were saying in that that a quarter of the cards were, were coarse well, and course. offensive. <laughs> well, so, so. I- I have some splendidly offensive Valentine's cards to come in the second half of this episode. So don't go away if you want to hear really offensive Valentine's Day. And messages. I can absolutely vouch for that because you've been texting them to me, some <laughs> of have. them. Yeah. And they really are. They really are coarse and offensive. So that is something <laughs> definitely That gives you a sense of to. the kind of banter that we do off <laughs> when we're not recording. <laughs> Sending each other oh. Victorian ditties. Uh, um, so, but um, Dominic, Valentine's Day, why are we celebrating it? That's the the kind of... Yeah, question, see, I don't know because basically all the questions we had on Twitter and on the Discord for Rest is History Club members, they sort of came from the same. Well, they came they came at it at the same angle that people approach Christmas and Easter and things, didn't, didn't they? They're sort of is it a pagan festival that has yeah. been cruelly taken over by the by the Catholic Church, or is it a hallmark holiday that has been invented by marketing men in Tuscaloosa? The whole the whole thing is unbelievably complicated. Yeah, and I reckon it's more complicated than Christmas or Easter because at more least with, complicated. Well, the thing is, 
with Christmas and Easter, it's it, it's pretty clear why they're happening. The birth of Jesus, um, you know, the, the resurrection of Jesus. These are are key events in the life of the central figure in in Christianity. But with with Valentine, it's it's a lot more complicated because um, who is Saint Valentine? How many Valentines were there? When was he martyred? Was he martyred? Did he exist? What happened to him? I hope you're going to answer those questions because I don't know the answers. So the problem is, I don't think that there are any absolute, right, abs- historically guaranteed answers to this. Because, so there are multiple St. Valentines. There's not one canonical Valentine. Okay, so so in the Roman martyrology, yeah, which is the the, the current kind of compendium of people who were martyred. Uh, you get at Rome on the Via Flaminia by the Milvian Bridge, St. Valentine Martyr. So the Via Flaminia is the road that leads from Rome uh, to the Adriatic, kind of yeah. over the Apennines. Milvian Bridge uh, will be familiar to all fans of Constantine. Uh, that's where he he won his great victory. Um, so St. Valentine, the problem is there was also another Valentine who was the Bishop of Terni, which is a place 60 miles north of Rome. A- and basically <laughs> he has the same name he was a martyr. The, the Roman martyrology is now saying that these are the same people. But they're but, not. Well, we don't know. <laughs> we right. don't know. I mean, maybe they are, maybe they're not. But I mean, if they've got the same date, the same name, the assumption usually is, is that they're the same person. But then adding to the complication, there's another Valentine who was the Bishop of Genoa, whose feast day is the 2nd of May. And that is important because that comes in later for the question of, of how and why Valentine's, Valentine comes to be associated with romance. So it's... It's an absolute kind of snarl and not. Yeah. Um, so probably there is a Valentine. There was a Valentine. He was martyred. Um, his relics were preserved. But the stories that then start to accumulate, how historically accurate, these are, I, you know, very, very hard to say, but almost certainly they're not accurate, I would, I would guess. Um, so when is he martyred? Uh, 14th of February. So that's, yeah. that's why we have his feast day on the 14th of February. Um, and late traditions say that it was in the reign of um, Claudius, the Emperor Claudius. All right, so very, pretty early, really. Well, no, because it doesn't fit in historically with the the early Emperor Claudius, the stutterer, the, the yeah. hero of. Uh, oh, so the later, there's a later Emperor Claudius, right? In the there is third century. I don't know, yes. fourth century. Claudius Gothicus. So when's he? Roughly? So he is um, two six eight to seventy. He he reigns. Okay. So he is a product of the third century um, implosion of, of the Roman Empire. And he's one of those kind of breed of rugged, tough, Novak Djokovic type um, <laughs> emperors from the Balkans. Who, he's, a, uh, he's, he's been deported from Australia and yeah, vaccination that kind of thing. difficulties. That kind of, well, so he, he's, he's very, he's, um, he's rough, he's tough. Uh, there's a story that he punched a, a horse in the mouth, and knocked out all his teeth. So he'd be sacked as a primary school teacher if he did that, wouldn't he? Yeah, he absolutely would. Yeah, he'd get in trouble if he was a footballer. Um, no, it wasn't. It was a cat, wasn't it? He was. Yeah, the, so that, the, that, the so, Premier League yeah, footballer so makes, was a cat. Yeah, so that makes. I, I didn't think we'd get here in a no, no, discussion no, no. of Valentine's Day, but I'm glad we have. Yeah, so he's very. So um, this this Claudius um, is the second one. Is very keen on punching out teeth. Right. So there's there's a story that he um, he punched a horse in the mouth, and all the horse's teeth went flying. Okay. Uh, and then he was in a wrestling match uh, and his opponent reached out and grabbed him by the bollocks. And so predictably, Claudius smashed him in the face and knocked out all his teeth. So that's very much his party trick. 
Uh, and and the, these when you know when the emperor when the empire is in the process of implosion it's obviously the kind of talents that you need yeah so he, he ends up becoming emperor and he's a very good emperor he's a, a strong military leader he defeats the alemanni he defeats the goths so that's why he gets his the name gothicus um and then he dies of um plague so one of the uh one of the, the horrendous plagues that sweeps yeah. over the roman empire in the third century um and so possibly it's this Claudius but the problem is that as you will gather from the synopsis I've given he's not actually around in Rome very much to go no. around martyring people but he's, no he's, off, of... he's off punching he doesn't, he doesn't punching sound... horses in the teeth on the frontier <laughs> he doesn't sound like a friend of romance right I mean no he's not the kind of man who'd be immortalized in a middle American greetings card so well, well no but 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 the thing is that he, he's martyring Valentine yeah yeah no exactly. so That's so so the sto- so the stories are uh, kind of these these th- these are increasingly medieval legends that um Valentine is a Christian at a time when it's illegal to be a Christian he is um he gets arrested by a judge he then converts the judge further stories say that the the daughter of the judge fell in love with him and that that he teaches her to love Jesus and all this kind of stuff and then Claudius comes in um, also very fond of Valentine, persuades, tries to persuade Valentine to give up his Christianity, doesn't, ends up having him martyred. Uh, and the story is he gets beaten to death with clubs. So you've got all these kind of various folkloric, yeah. mythic um, elements of the story that get elaborated over the Middle Ages. And then once you start to get the association with romance that will come to, then they you start to get kind of daughters of judges and daughters of emperors right. all get fed into the story. But it, but, but in it's, its initial form, there's nothing erotic or romantic in this story at all. I mean, unless you find punching there, horses in the face, there is absolutely nothing, nothing romantic at all. But is there not a, an existing festival around this time in the Roman calendar, Tom? Is this the time of the Lupercalia? Have I have I got that right? You have. Uh, so we've got a question on that from Jim Wackett. Um, is Valentine's Day a genuine example of a pagan Roman festival, the Lupercalia, that was Christianized and associated with a saint's day? Yeah. So this is the uh, equivalent to the idea that Christmas is, uh, you know, the, yeah. the Saturnalia with a different name. Exactly. Well, I, so I would I will describe what went on with the Lupercalia, and you can see <laughs> see what you think. Okay. Um, so so the Lupercalia was celebrated um, kind of in the middle of February. So 13th, 14th, 15th, that kind of period. So you've got, you have got the 14th of February kind of bang in the middle of that. Um, it took place um, around the Palatine, um, running into the Forum. So the Palatine is the, the hill in Rome that ends up becoming the imperial, yeah. um, the, well, the palace, obviously. Um, but it's a very ancient festival. Um, and it's, well, it's not the kind of festival that would generate, I think, a huge number of Hallmark cards. So, so what you have to do, well, uh, you mark the festival by um, offering up uh, various goats and a dog in sacrifice, oh. and, and you take their blood. See, the, the, everybody, no one minds the sacrifice of goats, do they? But as soon as you mention the dog, a lot of listeners will be rolling their eyes and saying, "Dead dogs again." I what think is people it quite with... like. I think people quite like goats as well. Do they? Yeah, I think so. I think we're less affect- We're less sentimental about. I goats. agree. Yes, I agree. I agree. But. but they... Anyway, come on. Sorry, anyway, I've sidetracked anyway. I've, 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 I've you. Let's talk about the Lupercalia. Yeah, so so you 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 these dead goats, yeah. this dead dog, you mix the blood, you wipe it on the brows of two um of two small boys, and then you immediately wipe it clean again. Mm-hmm. And this is the key thing: the boys then have to um burst out into wild laughter, and if that doesn't work, then they have to do the whole thing over again. 
So wow, so there's a lot of pressure on those boys. Yeah, well, if you're a goat or a dog, obviously, <laughs> you know, and you're lined up in case the boys don't laugh. Oh god, there's a lot at stake. <laughs> anyway, so that happens, and then what happens is women will basically kind of strip themselves, uh, get, will go topless, and they'll all gather around the kind of the spurs of the hill of the Palatine. Yeah, and the the men who are taking part in the Lupercalia will strip right, right down uh, to kind of very, very um, skimpy thongs. And they will then start running round the spurs of the Palatine. Yeah. And as they go by, they'll be carrying um, a, a, a kind of goat thong and they will whip the bare-breasted women with the goat thong. And this is in obedience to um, an oracle yeah. that had been given to the Romans where it said the sacred goat must enter the mothers of Italy. So obviously there are various ways in which a sacred goat could enter the mothers of Italy. This, <laughs> this, is, having, this is this is this is in a way the least the, intrusive. The most decorous. This is the yeah. most decorous way of doing it. And it's a way of, of um, stopping um, stillbirths. Does it work? Um, I'm guessing. Uh, well, no. yes, it does. No, it does. It does. And so this is why uh, women offer themselves up to the lash. Uh, yep. They get, you know, get smacked over the breasts with the, the goat thong. And then they, uh, they, pre- they all, you know, pregnancies work. So, <laughs> um, so, so there uh, you go. So, so that's the Lupercalia. There's a brilliant description of this actually in your book, Rubicon, isn't it? Mark Antony do it. Yeah, Mark Ant- so Mark Antony does it, yes. Uh, and um, that's the one where he ends up offering Caesar the crown. Yeah. So that's why it's, yes. Uh, that's He's sort of running of, madly through the streets, isn't he? Yeah. Mark Antony's very much the kind of guy who would enjoy running around Rome in a skimpy loincloth. Yeah, whipping whipping women over their breasts with a, a goat thong. The um, sort of so, bad behaviour of the Bullingdon club, <laughs> clubs of history is a definite theme of this podcast, and that is yeah. absolutely on trend, isn't it? The <laughs> well, so so you so this idea that there's an obvious line of descent from the Lupercalia to say Valentine's Day doesn't seem to, you know it's not obvious. No, it's not. And actually, if a Roman were transplanted into the 21st century, you said. This is what Lupercalia has become. Yes. You know, get yourself <laughs> down, dinners. Get yourself Very... down to Clinton Guards. Um, <laughs> Very disappointing. <laughs> immensely disappointed. Yeah. Very dull. The, the Lupercalia is a very popular ceremony. It, it has very, very you know, deep roots in the Roman past. And it's not until right at the end of the 5th century that it, it, it gets banned. It's, ba- it's actually banned. It doesn't it's die banned, out. It's banned by a pope called Galatius, who's, who's you know, he, he objects to it. Um, right. So I think it's kind of... Uh, four nine six or something like that it gets banned by him so um the the question then is well how how and why does valentine come to be associated yes. with romance so you said that a lot of a lot of um festivals you know we assume that they're american yeah the current thinking is that um actually valentine's day is probably english oh that's nice yeah, yeah. That's good, uh, and and it seems to have uh, emerged against the the backdrop of the um, the great literary revolution at the end of the fourteenth century with this is Chaucer, isn't Chaucer, it? and John Gower, and all kinds of people like that. Um, and the first the first kind of mention that we get in English poetry is in a poem by Chaucer called "The Parliament of Fowls." Yeah, Are you a fan of the Parliament of Fowls. Um, I've seen bits of it on the internet. <laughs> um, seen the film yeah I've seen the film <laughs> seen the cartoon it's great um, now tell me about the parliament of fowls tom you know i know nothing about it at all <laughs> okay so the parliament of fowls is, is an interesting poem yeah 
um, because it's the first uh, poem that actually mentions the word election in the sense that we use it now of kind of choosing, right? You know, choosing someone to to rep- represent you politically. Did election have a previous meaning? Yeah. What does it mean? Well, you know, the the election of you know, it's, are you part of the elect? That kind of. Oh, thing. Oh, I see. Okay, okay, okay. So this means an election, as in a kind of democratic. An election, as in yeah. the general election that we yeah. we we'd have now, um, and. So the plot of it is, is that Chaucer is reading um, uh, a book by Cicero, The Dream of Scipio, and um, he falls asleep. Uh, Scipio appears to him, uh, leads him up through the celestial spheres, and he finds himself in the Temple of Venus. And he walks through the Temple of Venus and there it's very dark and there are images of unhappy lovers. And then he comes out into this um, this kind of bright meadow, a hill of flowers and all the birds are there and it's their parliament and this parliament shows the lords you know so the the top birds yeah but also the commons so it's the first representation in poetry of what would become the parliamentary system and the backdrop to this is the you know that that's kind of the, the wave of weird parliaments that you get at the end of the 14th century yeah the kind of the good parliament and the the bad yeah. parliament and all those kind of various parliaments. There must be other parliaments <laughs> than good and bad. <laughs> anyway, so among all this, all the the um, what's happening in this parliament is that the the birds are choosing their mates, at mates as in yeah, you know, romantic others rather than yes, rather mates. Than. And you get this verse: for this was on Saint Valentine's Day when every fowl cometh there to choose his mate. Every kind that men think may, and that's a huge a noise can they make that earth and air and tree and every lake so full was that underneath was there space for me to stand so full was all the place. I liked that uh, Sam Gamgee rendition that you gave initially. <laughs> Thank you. Chaucer, Chaucer Thank voice. you. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, I mean, so, so I think you do want to imagine these birds in a kind of sh- a shire, an idyllic landscape, green yeah. hills, all that kind of stuff. And the implication of this is that it's the time of year when, you know, sp- spring is coming, um, the end of winter, thoughts turn to romance. And so that, I think, is why it's um, uh, Valentine is associated with, you know, it's, it, it's, it's the time of year, it's the beginning of spring, it's the sap rising, all that kind of stuff. But again, the question is, why is Chaucer fixing on Valentine's Day? Um, and it's, it's not just... Uh, Chaucer who's doing this so John Gower who is a moral Gower uh, Chaucer calls him um, who's another poet writes in English but also writes in Latin writes in French and in one of these French poems Gower um, describes Saint Valentine greater than any emperor holding a parliament and assembly of all the birds who come on his day where the female takes her mate in proper love so again, oh. this kind of weird thing. What what you know? What is going on here? Uh, and, they, and these guys, one of them is not copying the other. They're both doing it coincidentally. Do you think? Or well, Gower and Chaucer are friends, so there is debate about this. Yeah, interesting. About who comes first, and it's uh, and the precise dating of Chaucer's poem is important because um, one of the theories about what's going on here and and why it's being written is that it. Um, it marks the treaty of marriage that is being signed b- between Richard II and Anne of Bohemia, yeah. which takes place in 1381. But here is the twist. Is it on the 14th of February, Dominic? Ooh. Or is it on the 2nd of May, which you'll remember? Was another Valentine's Day. Was the feast day of the, yeah. uh, the, the Valentine who is um, the Bishop of Genoa. 
So, gosh, the stakes are high in this, Tom. It's well, there's exciting. no answer. There's no answer. I mean, we don't know. Is 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 the answer? But isn't um, this isn't this also is the backdrop to all this that it's the age of courtly love and sort of chivalric yes. romances and yeah. so the whole business about choosing a mate and the sort of you imagine the sort of almost like the ritualistic dances or something at the courts. This is part of that, isn't it? It, it? it absolutely is. So all that language of courtly love. I mean, Chaucer is um, is very keen on that, translating the Romance of the Rose, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the Arthurian myths and all that kind of, you know, Lancelot and Guinevere, all that kind of thing. And it just seems to be part of the um, of the language of the English court at this period. Yeah. Um, and over the course of the 15th century, so Richard II gets toppled, you get Henry IV who replaces him, and then friend of the show, Henry V. Yeah. And in the reign of Henry V, it really starts to, to pick up. So the very first Valentine that we have surviving, so, a, you know, a, a poem written to someone asking them to be their Valentine, is by Charles, the Duke of Orléans, who was captured at Agincourt, who gets brought back to England and locked up in the tower. And yeah. he's there in the tower for kind of years and years and years. Um, and and he writes um, to his wife, I am sick of love, my very gentle Valentine. Je suis déjà d'amour tanné, ma très douce Valentine. So he calls her his Valentine. So that yeah, expression, very, my Valentine, very, yeah. people are using it in the 15th century. His very, my, my very sweet Valentine. Yeah. But when he's calling her his Valentine, does he mean, you know, you are the spirit of St. Valentine? or? That has val- the word Valentine taken on this kind of romantic meaning at that point? I mean, obviously, well, see, see, the latter. It, I think the latter, yeah. And so the, the, the process by which, you know, w- w- what it is that joins Chaucer and Gower's poems yeah. in the English court to Charles, Duke of Orléans, coming up with this. I mean, he's in, he's in England. He's at the English court. So presumably he's, that's where he's picked it up. And you get... Um, uh, you then get John Lydgate, who's a, a poet uh, from the reign of um, Henry V and after, um, and he's writing in honour of Queen Catherine, yeah, know, the Catherine, Catherine of Valois, who's married Henry V and been left widowed and will go on to marry Owen Tudor. Um, and, and he again refers to Valentine's Day, to look and search Cupid's calendar and choose their choice by great affection. So there you've got the idea of of a Valentine is someone that you choose. So like a knight choosing his lady. Yeah. So on Valentine's Day, you choose your Valentine. Um, and by the end, towards the end of the 15th century, you've got the Paston Letters. Paston Letters are, have, I think, three references to people becoming Valentines. So um, uh, Marjorie Bruce, writing to her future husband, uh, calls him my right well-beloved Valentine. And the idea is also then starts to pick up through into the 16th century that you send tokens to your Valentine. But these are people you're already you're already betrothed or married to, right? These are not just random people that you've got your eye on kind of thing. Well, there seems that I don't think there's a hard and fast rule because this is, this is a, a, an evolving tradition. Yeah. So the fact that um, the feast day of Valentine gets abolished by Edward VI, with, you know, the Reformation kicks in. So Saints Day's in for dig, but Valentine's Day is, is kept as the expression of, an evolving tradition where there are kind of various possibilities. So by the 17th century, yeah, there are various ways in which you can choose a Valentine. So there's the one that we would understand that you, you know, there's a beautiful woman uh, or indeed beautiful man uh, and you um, 
you know, you, you send the equivalent of a card, a Valentine card. Yeah. So what, someone who does that is um, the future James II, the Duke of York, who um, sees Lady Frances Stuart, who is reputedly the most beautiful of all the, uh, the women at Charles II's court, um, becomes the model for Britannia. Um, and he gives her a jewel worth £800 oh, as a Valentine. That's a heck of a lot of money in yeah, modern so, times. I mean, it is. So that, that's better than a card. Then there's there's uh, this idea that you can um, that you 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 get your Valentine by lot, and so there are kind of various jokes made throughout the 17th century that this is how um, public officials should be chosen. All oh, right, uh, so people say choose a public official like a Valentine's. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then the third one. Is, so this is a report from a Dutch visitor who comes yeah. to England in um, 1663. It is customary, alike for married as for unmarried people, that the first person one meets in the morning, that is, if one is a man, the first woman or girl, becomes one's Valentine. He asks her name, which he takes down and carries on a long strip of paper in his hatband, in the same way the woman or girl wears his name on her bodice. Uh, and then you get presents from them. So um, it's a kind of nice idea that this is all done at completely at random. That's not, that isn't, I like that idea, but of course it's quite high risk. Yes. And the Dutch visitor goes on to say that actually this gets kind of planned in advance. Yeah. So, you know, the the girl will be lurking around the corner waiting for the boy to run past or whatever. Right. Um, oh, that's good. I like that. So you, I mean, you, you, you have the sense of this, this tradition emerging. Nobody quite knows how, but it's associated with the feast day of Valentine. Yeah. And then Valentine becomes associated with all the, the, you know, this idea that you, you choose a Valentine and that it's romantic. Well, that at this point, you see, it's quite, it is quite romantic and it's not commercialized, is it? There's no, because how could it be? Because there's no infrastructure of sort of commercialism that could really exploit it. I mean, that's, that's true, isn't it? It's not commercialized at this point. Well, as, as, unless you're the jeweler supplying the Duke of York, I suppose. Yes. And I think that's probably the case into the 18th century, Tom, because I know the Georgians were very keen on Valentine's Day, weren't they? Well, t- the, the only thing I've got about the Georgians is that by the 18th century, um, it, you're starting to get uh, Catholics and indeed, you know, Christians of all denominations, but particularly Catholics, who are starting to raise their eyebrows at what's going on. And uh, it's, as far as I can tell, it's it's not a kind of, you know, a, a mocking philosoph or an atheist who, who points out... Um, who tries to kind of draw this, um, you know, the the idea that St. Valentine's Day is a mutation of the Lupercalia. It's actually Catholics who are doing it, who are opposed to the the idea of Valentine's Day. That's very weird. Why would they be opposed to it? Because they, maybe because they don't want to give ammunition to Protestants who think it's just flummery and stuff. So well, you've got Butler, so Butler as in Butler's Lives, the, you know, the great kind of compendium of, of saints' lives that gets written in the 18th century. And he says that um, to abolish the heathens' lewd superstition custom of boys drawing the names of girls in honour of their goddess Februta Juno on the 15th of this month, several zealous pastors substituted the names of saints in billets given on this day. But that's not going to catch on, is it? I mean, that's... No, but, but it's not true. But it's not true. But it's his, he's trying to explain how it is that... Um, valentine has become associated with romance and to do that he has to posit that there is a festival a pagan festival that didn't exist that is a match to the idea of people you know kind of choosing one another's valentines so the whole thing is kind of structured but it's it's basically expressive of the fact that we we don't know really (laughs) what the origins of this but in a way it doesn't really matter does it because by the mid-18th century it's become embedded in the kind in kind of folk tradition you know, the fourteenth by this point, 
everybody knows that the 14th of February is Valentine's Day. There's a brilliant website called All Things Georgian, which has a whole list of um, things that happened on Valentine's Day in the Georgian period from newspapers. So this is from Reed's Weekly Journal, the 16th of February, 1751. It says, Thursday, one Mrs. Mann, aged upwards of 60, who keeps a cook and chandler's shop in Shoreditch, was married to a soldier caught in that neighbourhood, aged about 22. That's quite a big age gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, being asked by a neighbour, how could she think of marriage at these years? She replied it was Valentine's Day and she was resolved to be coupled. The old je- Now, you might think, what, what's in it for the soldier? <laughs> I mean, there's not many 22-year-old young men who want to marry 60-year-old women. And the answer is, is in the next line. The old gentlewoman had, by her frugality and industry, collected upwards of £200, which she freely bestowed on her new love. That is so, so romantic. What a romantic story that is. That is so romantic. That's, I bet that's a union that ended well. But here's this one. How about this one, Tom, from a, um, 1784 from the Morning Herald? It may be worth remarking that on last Valentine's Day, a couple were married in St. Peter's Church, Derby, who had between them seven thumbs, viz. Well, goodness. The, the woman three and the man four. Wow. Now that's, that's more than Anne Boleyn. Yeah. I mean, Goodness that's a lot. That's a heck of a lot. That's more thumbs yeah. than you need. But I that's mean, an astonishing coincidence if they just happen to run each, into each other. <laughs> they, I mean, but they obviously have loads to talk about. No, but they must have met at <laughs> some thumb support group. <laughs> it must be. Yeah. Goodness. Does it, um, does it doesn't say how they met. No, it doesn't. The Morning Herald is very – it's poor reporting, Coy. isn't it? It's Coy poor on yeah. that. It's, <laughs> it's the obvious question. Yeah, it's, 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 it's lazy journalism. <laughs> Okay, so so it's um, the hints of the commercial are there, I guess. Well, the fact that they're reporting it and then uh, they're reporting a, it, yeah. And, yeah. and you've got print, I think, and and people are buying it. Newspapers. Once people are buying things, then you have. So then, Dominic, yeah. I, w- at the start, you read out that brilliant thing of the uh, the postman being engulfed by by letters. Yes, um, and I've been looking forward to hearing more about the course and offensive. Um, <laughs> Valentine's got sent, so we should have a break and and come back to that. But just before we get by by the nineteenth century in the church, that the, the idea of Valentine's Day as a day for romance and love is starting to be integrated. So, do you know where the um so the skull of uh, of a Valentine is in Rome? One of the churches in Rome. Well, one of the Valentines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but do you know where the rest of them are? The rest of the relics. No, uh, they're in Wiltshire, no doubt. No, they're in Dublin. Are they? Yeah, they're in the um, they're in the Church of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Whitefriar Street. Why are they there? I'll tell you. There was a very famous Irish Carmelite preacher called John Spratt. Right. And he went to Rome and he gave a, a sermon, a homily, um, and it was very, very much appreciated. And um, the Pope seems to have heard it. And so he sent the relics of Valentine to the um to the Carmelite Church in Dublin as a token of his appreciation. Oh, that's kind. Um and so there's a little note, came with a little note. It was taken out of the cemetery of St. Hippolytus in the Tibetine Way, and it arrived in Dublin on the 10th of December um 1836. And if you go there now, it's a it's very it's it's very moving. There's a kind of statue of um of Valentine looking at a kind of rosy cheeked. Yeah, so raising cheeks and, and and pink lipped. So he's sort of turned into Cupid, as I imagine. Has he? But... He has a he has a slight hint of Cupid, the statue. Yes, um, but there's um, a, a a book there, and people can write if they're unhappy in love or if they're looking for love. Oh, and lonely hearts. Some, some very yeah, kind of spiritual lonely hearts book, um, and it's very touching. So not at all. I saw it on my last trip to Dublin when we were 
we had a, a compendium of unexpected things in Dublin. Right. And, and the relics of St. Valentine were quite high on that list. So we went to see them. That sounds very, that sounds very romantic, Tom. Yeah. And yeah. not at all. So not at all coarse and inoffensive, which is what I hope no, um, so, will be so. the notes we're striking after the, <laughs> after the break. Can't wait. See you in a minute. Okay. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the Gray Strandom Wing Chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello, welcome back to our Valentine's Day edition of The Rest is History and excitement is rising because Dominic is about to tell us about the great Victorian tradition of coarse and offensive Valentines. Well, you just have to wait a little bit longer for the coarse and offensive messages because I want to build up to them because uh, we talked about how Valentine's Day had become sort of embedded in the Georgian imagination in the 18th century. Um, And it's in Georgian Britain. I think in the second half of the century that you start to get pre-printed cards. So the ancestors of Valentine's cards. So if you think Valentine's cards were invented by American manufacturers, you are quite wrong. The Americans got the idea from us, from the British. And so first of all, people, Tom, would have you ever handmade a Valentine's card? No. No, neither have I. Well, we're very poor compared with our Georgian predecessors because they would handmake them. People started to make what they called mechanical Valentines, which were kind of you know mass-produced printed ones. Um, I think the first example of a surviving one is in York, York Castle Museum. And it was sent by Catherine Mostay to a Mr. Brown of London. And it's decorated with pictures of Cupid. So we talked about Cupid. But what, what's earlier. mechanical about it? Well, it's made by a machine. It's printed. I oh, I see. I was um, kind of imagining a moving one. No. You kind of <laughs> like the, the box. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and a kind of heart leaps out at you yeah, no. on a spring. No, no, no. It's just a nice message. Since on this ever happy day, all nature's full of love and play, yet harmless still, if my design, tis but to be your Valentine. That's beautiful. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. I'm going to be reading a lot of poems in this second half, so so be warned. Um, and there's actually, uh, uh, in the same year, 1797, somebody publishes a book called The Young Man's Valentine Writer. So a manual about how to write nice Valentine poems. 
So this sort of becomes more and more popular. And people basically, they're not sealing them in envelopes. They're not cards. They're sort of pieces of paper that you fold over. And they'll have lace on and threads. And they'll be very sort of pretty. But the big turning point, Tom, you know I have a weird interest. Well, not an interest in, but a knowledge of the history of the post office. I do, Dominic. I commend to the public my own audio book on the history of the post office called The People's Post. Very good, very good (laughs) Radio 4 series, which you can buy uh, at all good audiobook retailers. Can you? So you can. Yeah, you can. That's it. Wow. I've probably got the best reviews of anything I've ever done, basically because I was merely the front man. Wow, I must listen to it. And actual experts did all the work. I I thought I'd kept abreast of all your oeuvre, but... (laughs) No, no, sadly not. So so there are tens of thousands of Valentine's cards being sent in Britain, supposedly, in the 1830s. But the real turning point is in 1840, when you have for the first time the penny post. So before then, Tom, if you sent a letter, the recipient had to pay for it. So um, the penny post is this great revolution by this postal reformer called Roland Hill. And the innovation is you pay a penny. So it's democratising communications and encouraging literacy and so on you pay a penny and you can send a letter anywhere and the recipient doesn't have to pay for it at all so it's the penny post in 1840 that gives you basically stamps it gives us letterboxes in doors there weren't letterboxes before uh, because you would knock on the door to get the recipient to pay you and it also creates um pillar boxes so designed of course by anthony trollope the novelist. Yeah, and so, uh, ancestor of Al Murray. So what happens with all this is that letter writing becomes anonymous. Um, you can post your letter. You know, you don't have to hand oh. your letter in and all that. So the possibility for the anonymous Valentine's card with the recipient doesn't have to pay for. So they get, they get it, as it were, for free, um, starts to become – so this sort of spreads in, in the mid-19th century. So Blackwood's magazine says – the post office system offers a facility for clandestine correspondence, which no respectable father or mother on the European side of the Atlantic would think of without a shudder. So we think so this is very kind of moral panic. Like it is a bit moral panic. on the yes. internet. Yeah. You know what G.K. Chesterton said about post boxes? He said the post box is the treasure house of a thousand secrets, the fortress of a thousand souls. So this sort of idea that the post office has become this sort of conduit for clandestine romance. Um, and it's true because there's this huge boom in love letters and obviously Valentine's cards in the years after the 1840s. So do you know, Tom, how, how, do you know how you would write to somebody if you fell in love with them at first sight? Do you know what a letter writing manual would tell you what to say? Well, uh, to write a poem, I guess. No. Dear Miss Hawley, you will, I trust, <laughs> forgive this abrupt and plainly spoken letter. Although I've been in your company but once, I cannot forbear writing to you in defiance of the rules of etiquette. Affection is sometimes of slow growth, but sometimes it springs up in a moment. I left you last night with my heart no longer my own. I cannot, of course, hope that I've created any interest in you, but will you do me the great favour to allow me to cultivate your acquaintance? So that's from Thomas Hill's book of... um... Okay, I think that's wrong. I mean, I don't want to diss Thomas Hill, but I would write a poem. Do you know what Miss Hawley writes back? He gives an example in Miss Hawley's reply. Sir, your note was a surprise to me, considering that we'd never met until last evening, and that our <laughs> conversation so feminine. and that our conversation had only been on commonplace subjects. Your conduct is indeed quite strange. You will please be so kind as to oblige me by not repeating the request, allowing this note to close that correspondence. Yeah, so, exactly. So you exactly. are vindicated. You're totally I am vindicated. vindicated. Yeah. So anyway, people start, you know, because they basically can't trust themselves to write poems and you know they can't be bothered to copy out these passages from from kind of love letter manuals they they buy printed 
Valentine's cards. And the king of the printed Valentine's card is a man called Jonathan King, who's a stationer in London, late Victorian stationer. And there's a collection in the Museum of London. You should go, Tom, on one of your walks. They have 1,700 different cards, examples of cards that Jonathan King made. They're often very, very fancy. Um, here's a good example of a card, of a message in a card, Tom. The card is made out of human hair, which Ooh. is hormone. Kind of, not what, what kind of hair? Human hair. <laughs> All it says here is well, human hair fashioned from where? into <laughs> human hair. Well, you know, you know how Caroline Lamb expressed her devotion to, uh, to Lord Byron. I do indeed, but so, I bet she didn't fashion it into a moustache, which is what this <laughs> this card. Okay, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing says love like like a lady's pubic hair fashioned into a moustache. Well, I think you're imagining that first bit of that, Tom. But the, oh. the card, the, the, the moustache comes with a, a message that says, for the new woman, with St. Valentine's heartiest greetings and best hopes, she will receive another moustache with the man attached. Oh, I see. It's the man sending the moustache to the woman. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So Britain, actually, at this point, absolutely led the world in Valentine's cards. So proud. And um, American publishers, American stationers, would issue catalogues with lists of their imported British Valentine's cards. So I've dug one out from 1847, and the categories are absolutely splendid. Comic, sentimental, lovesick, lovesick, acrostic, funny, burlesque, witty, arabesque. It goes on and on, listing all the categories. And at the end, it says, enlivening, heart-aching, despairing, raving mad, heart-killing, <laughs> high-flown, lampooning, romantic, Proposal, espousal, matrimonial, henpecking, suicidal, and many other varieties. <laughs> suicidal? <laughs> suicidal. <laughs> but there's a woman in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, who our American listeners may have heard of, called Esther Howland. And she basically decided that she could do better. Well, she, was, she said they're too expensive, all these imported British cars, and there's a huge market for it in America. So she set up her own business. Did she undercut um, British <laughs> she did but i think they were very good she basically copied verses from english valentines it's a timeless story isn't and it? imported sort of materials from germany and stuff and it became a tremendous empire and i think for half a century until it was actually overtaken by the hallmark company which started up in kansas city in 1910 hers was the biggest basically the biggest sort of american so it's a complete metaphor complete metaphor for the decline of british industry in the yeah. face of american and german competition Yes, I suppose it is. Um, I mean, they were absolutely amazing, these Valentine's cards, by the way, Tom. They were far, far better than... So they were much fancier. The American the, ones. Well, the Americans and the British ones of the 19th century. The real peak of people... Th uh, so many of the questions we had on uh, Discord and online were, you know, is it a 20th century phenomenon? Um, is it sort of a Halloween? I think that's the assumption, isn't it, in Britain? That it's Hall it's a basically a romantic Halloween, a commercial Americanized tradition. But actually, Valentine's Day, I would say, was much bigger between about 1840 and 1880 than it mm -hmm. is now. And it was British manufacturers being copied by, um, by Americans. Now, you wanted coarse and offensive. Yes, I do. The one bit of this that we've completely lost touch with is the vinegar valentine. And there's been some splendid studies of this, that particularly as a scholar called Annabella Pollan at the University of Brighton. Um, who I should acknowledge, who's written lots of articles and stuff about this. So vinegar valentines were cards to insult people, and they were exceedingly popular. Um, so, for example, there's a, they, they would have a sort of caption on them. So here's one that the caption says, Miss Nosy. 
<laughs> and he would send it to a woman you disliked. And it would say, on account of your talk of others' affairs, at most dances you sit warming the chairs. Because of the care with which you attend to all others' business, you haven't a friend. And Dominic, this would be commercially made or would... Yeah, they're commercially made. They're com- there are loads of them. You'd go into WH Smith's or whatever, I mean, the equivalent, and you'd buy a vinegar valentine, you'd send it to rival podcasters, for example. So, for example, Tom, I might send you this. You're as vulgar a cad as I'd wish to meet, and yet you're devoured with pride and conceit. But I fancy before very long you'll find out that everyone thinks you're an ignorant lout. Goodness. <laughs> wow. Receiving that. Yeah, so, I'd, I'd feel... Actually, that one, is, that, one is not, uh, that one is not appropriate for you. This one is much better. It just says on the front, um, are you Gertie Gabba? Are Ooh. you Gertie Gabba, Tom? Uh, oh. Not as far as I'm aware. But... Well, wait. Wait for it. So this is what the poem says. Gertie Gabba does not know. Her talking can quite tiresome grow. Her tongue keeps wagging all the day, and really nothing does she say. Then there's another one called Show Off. And obviously not appropriate for you at all. No. Uh, (laughs) You claim you're good at anything. So come on, show some proof and let me see how good you are at jumping off the roof. (laughs) (laughs) So these were, they started. That's amazing. So you can buy these. Yeah. In the American Civil War, soldiers would buy this one. It would say on the front and they would give it to their their doctors in their, the sort of surgeons in their platoon or whatever. And it would say on the front to the surgeon, Ho, ho, old sawbones, here you come. Yes, when the rebels whack us, you're always ready with your traps to mangle, saw, and hack us. And you would send these on Valentine's Day to people you disliked. Um, But my absolute favorite one of these, which I really wish somebody would um, bring back, um, (laughs) the front of the card says, you are a nerve destroyer. (laughs) When a pig's getting slaughtered, the noise that it makes is sweeter by far than your trills and your shakes. And the howling of cats in the backyard at night, compared with your singing's a dream of delight. Your squalls and your bawls are such torture to hear, a man almost wishes he had not an ear. If someone would choke you and thus end their pain, hearty thanks from your poor distressed neighbours he'd gain. Wow. You wouldn't get away. That's that's top trolling, I think, is the... Um, it really... I mean, it really is. And the idea that, um, that this is... Uh making lots of people money yeah um i mean it makes it makes today's internet look an absolute model of good behavior yes it does it i was astounded when i came across these because of course we sentimentalize our forebears and we think oh they're so innocent and all this sort of stuff and and actually this is you know the height of sentimentality of victorian britain and america um sort of little women emily dickinson you know uh robert Bar- browning and so on but actually, you know, people are sending these. But it's the anonymity. Horrendous. the key. I mean, anonymous said, Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah. No one knows. Yes, exactly. They're unsigned. And you just think, God, I'm Gertie Gabba. <laughs> well, no, yeah. Or, or people think I'm Gertie Gabba. Yeah. I've been singing. I'd say that's not true. I'm not. But that's what people think. Well, that's the thing. You think you've been singing by the piano to entertain your relatives night after night in that sort of Victorian way. But actually, they wish someone would choke you. Yeah. <laughs> it's wow. harsh, isn't it? And when did this um, when did this custom kind of fade? It seems to have died out around the um, end of the nineteenth century. Um, I, I don't really know what. Back. I think there's a sort of diminution in Valentine's Day generally um, around about the well, turn of the twentieth century. And I, th- I think any any entrepreneurial card manufacturers listening yeah. to this, yeah, of course, I think there's a gap in the market. Don't there. send them to us, though. I mean, no, no. 
other history podcasts are available. Send them to them, but um, but not yes. to us. So we've got some other stuff, haven't we? That I mean, obviously Valentine's Day things have happened on Valentine's Day. Well, there's been a massacre, hasn't there? So I think they've got a question on that. Skinny Dan. Yeah, the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago needs a mention. It's got nothing to do with St. Valentine, though, has it? Or romance? Um, nothing says romance like gunning down. Like Al Capone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gunning down people in garages. St. Valentine's Day massacre. For those people who don't know, is a um, it's the shooting of seven men on Thursday, the fourteenth of February, nineteen twenty-nine, in uh, Lincoln Park, Chicago, in the north side of Chicago. Um, it comes towards the end of the Prohibition period when Chicago has basically become a sort of a bit of a sink, um, uh, riven by gang violence between two gangs. One of them is the Northside Gang, who are mainly Irish and Polish, and the other are what's called the Chicago Outfit, who are run by Al Capone, um, so they're Italians, and uh, they're fighting mainly over the kind of brewing and liquor distribution. Um the two gangs had tried to make peace, but but failed. Uh, Moran had um, sent people to go and um, try and kill Capone. Capone's actually spending a lot of time in Florida right now. He's that sort of gangster as celebrity, the first real gangster as celebrity, I suppose. Uh, but basically, that this Thursday morning, some of his men disguise themselves as, as police officers. They go into a kind of garage on the north side where Moran's some of Moran's men are. There are two. There are also two kind of bystanders. There are five of Moran's men and two bystanders. Are kind of an optician and a mechanic um, who are sort of kept swept, caught up in the sweep, and they basically, you know, line them up against a wall and machine gun them. And they all they all die. They all die. And the weird thing. So actually, even the poor optician. Well, the optician was sort of vaguely associated with the Moran gang, as was the mechanic. They were sort of hangers on rather than okay. full on kind of. But they were killed. The, Seems the, old for an optician. Optician, well, I mean, you can kind of get too. a mechanic. Yeah, but you know, mechanics you can see, but an optician. Yeah, but maybe if you, you need want to hang to out a, with gangsters. But if you need, if you're if you're going to be a gunman, you need good eyesight. That's true. You? I mean, yeah, specsavers. Um, so the one one of the only one of them is sort of really alive at the end of it. So he's dying. He's called Frank Gusenberg. He was a he was a real hoodlum for the Northside Gang, and uh, but because of the sort of omerta cult, you know, the sort of you can't speak. And when the police arrived, the police said to him, he's, he's got 14 bullet wounds. And the police say to him, you know, who, who shot you? Who shot you? And he says, no one shot me. <laughs> so obviously he has been shot. And he denies being shot, having been shot right up to the point where he dies. Um, it seems wow. absolutely self-defeating. Impressive. Uh, but the Valentine's Day massacre is very important, Tom, because it, it, it was very big scandal. Um, it encouraged the federal government to move on Capone. Obviously, they charged him with tax evasion famously in 1932. But it helps to bring down the city's mayor, William W. Thompson, who was corrupt and was in league with the Capone people. And do you know what the Chicago Tribune said when he fell from grace? No. For Chicago, Thompson has meant filth, corruption, obscenity, idiocy, and bankruptcy. He's given our city an international reputation for moronic buffoonery, barbaric crime, triumphant hoodlumism, unchecked graft graft and a dejected citizenship he made chicago a byword for the collapse of american civilization nothing says romance to me more than no, uh, that's... moronic buffoonery um isn't is it right that um uh the involvement of the police is suspected in the valentine's well they've never they've never actually well there were two there were people disguised as police or they had police uniforms. oh okay that's what it is um right? but what i uh, 
the Capone, all these gangs were very, very tightly interwoven with the Chicago police and with the Chicago authorities. So actually, yes, in a way, Tom, the, there was such intense corruption that the dividing line between the gangsters and the police was virtually imperceptible. So, so yes, you're, you're right in a way. Okay, so nothing says romance like gulling down people in a garage. Um, other, so other things happened. Captain Cook was killed. He was indeed, yes. Yeah, Friend yeah. of the show. Um, Gregory Seventh, my favourite Pope. Excommunicated, he excommunicated Henry IV on this day. Oh, God, you love that story. I do. Well, we're going to do an episode on that at some point. Um, so this is the 11th century. Yeah. Uh, Henry IV is the emperor. Gregory Seventh is the Pope. They're meant to get on. They don't. Henry IV says to Gregory Seventh, step down, come down, come down, give up your papacy, to which Gregory responds by excommunicating him. And as he does so, the papal throne splits in two. Wow. Do you so think he contrived that? that? Oh, Dominic, I don't think it really happened. Oh, okay. I don't think it really happened. <laughs> that's, that's so often the case on this podcast. I know, I know. But um, the most recent thing, of course, that happened within our lifetimes was the issuing of the fatwa against Salman Rushdie by the Ayatollah Khomeini. That's kind of vinegar valentine of a very vinegary. That kind. really is a vinegar valentine, isn't it? Shame you didn't do it in rhymes. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but uh, yeah, if he'd written it in a sort of Victorian How I hate style. the satanic verses. Yeah. I'm there are bad books and there are worses. Yes. <laughs> Apologies to, to Salman Rushdie if he's listening to this. Um, so that was, that was obviously um, a big deal. Anyway, so um, I think we've, that's pretty much yeah. St. Valentine's think, Day, isn't it? I think we've been sort of building up to that, haven't we? Um, when I first started doing this podcast, I really wanted to end, to get to a point where we would be issuing fast speaking in Or speaking in, in verse. I mean, I like to think of this as a, a Valentine's Day card to our listeners. Yes, it is, Tom, actually. And, and since you've, you've said that, I think we should end with another Valentine's message. This is a, a genuine Victorian <laughs> Valentine's message. Maybe not, appro- not appropriate for all our listeners, but for one or two, perhaps. The kiss of a bottle is your heart's delight, and fuddled you reel home to bed every night. What care you for damsels, no matter how fair? Apart from your liquor, you've no love to spare. Goodbye. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.